In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Galatians chapter number 4. And, of course, we are in a Bible study on Wednesday nights going through the uh, book of Galatians, verse by verse, chapter by, by chapter. And last week that we were in the book of Galatians, we dealt with verses 1 through 7. So we're going to just, of course, pick up right where we left off. And tonight we're going to actually cover verses uh, 8 through 20. So we're not going to cover the rest of the chapter. We're just going to cover uh, the middle section of the chapter. And uh, we'll give the last part of the chapter its, its own sermon. Uh, but just as I've been doing uh, recently, I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of give you the two headings up front. Uh, because these several verses, Galatians 4, 8 through 20, can be divided into two different sections or two different headings. The first would be verses 8 through 11. And if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place to write down some notes. You could uh, give verses 8 through 11 this, this heading, Paul's doubts for the Galatians. Paul's doubts for the Galatians. And then verses 12 through 20 you could give it this heading, Paul's hopes for the Galatians. So we'll see verses 8 through 11, Paul's doubts uh, for the Galatians or of the Galatians, and verses 12 through 20, Paul's hopes uh, for the Galatians. And of course, if you've been with us uh, through the study in Galatians, you know that uh, the book of Galatians has been quite a hostile book. Uh, uh, This epistle, this letter that Paul wrote the Galatians has not been... Uh, very nice. In fact, he has uh, rebuked them sharply on several things. And of course, if you've been with us, you know that we've been talking about the themes of the book of Galatians, and the, the, the themes have to do with what's going on. And what's happening is that Paul started these churches in this region of Galatia. He got them saved, he got them discipled, he got them growing, he got them organized, and they started these churches. And then when Paul left, the Bible uh, is recording for us the fact that these Judaizers uh, from Judea, from Jerusalem, have came to Galatia, and they have brought in false doctrine. They are bad-mouthing the Apostle Paul. They're uh, criticizing Paul, and they are teaching that in order to actually be a Christian, you not only have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also have to keep the laws of Moses or the Mosaic law. They're trying to bring these New Testament Gentile Christians under the uh, idea of Judaism and adding that to Christianity. And, of course, they're attacking the gospel uh, because they're teaching that you have to add the laws of Moses to salvation. So they're attacking salvation by grace through faith. They're attacking the Apostle Paul. uh, and, And these are the themes that we're dealing with in this book. And that's why Paul has been coming that's why he wrote the book of Galatians, is to correct some of these problems, and he's been coming at them kind of hard. And the reason I, I bring that up is because you need to understand the context of the verses we're going to look at, and that is the context in which we find ourselves. Paul spent some theological verses, verses 1 through 7, uh, trying to correct them, and he's going to use in the next portion uh, some theological verses to continue to correct them. But he takes a break in verses 8 through 20 from his logic and intellect from the theology that he's expounding, and he really just speaks to them from his heart in these verses, and we see Paul's heart towards these people that he cares about as he is correcting them. So let's begin here with Paul's doubts uh, of the Galatians, and I want you to notice there in verse 8 that Paul thought that they were saved, 
And notice he speaks about them before they were saved or before their salvation. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8, he says this, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, and this is a reference to them not being saved, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. And what he's talking about is the fact that the Galatians being Gentiles, before they were saved, they were worshiping idols. And he's uh, bringing this up and saying, When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. And of course, you'll notice the capital G there on how be it then when ye knew not God, that's the true God, the God of the Bible, uh, he says, which uh, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no, and then of course you notice the lowercase g, gods. These would be uh, idol worship or those that are not truly uh, deity, and, and, and it might even be referencing, of course, devils and demons. And he's bringing up the fact that before they got saved, they were worshiping that which by nature are no gods. He said, you're worshiping idols which are not God. Now, I actually brought this up last week, but we're here in this text, so I want you to just see it again. He brings up their idol worship, and then in verse 9, he says this, but now, after that, ye have known God, or rather are known of God. Now, we're going to come back to that phrase uh, here in a minute, but I just want you to notice the, the, the point that he's making. He he says, how be it then when ye knew not God, verse 8, referring to before they were saved, he says, but now after they have known God or rather are known of God, saying now that you are saved, he says, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. So he says, now that you know God, you are turning again to the weak and beggarly elements. He said, you are turning to some elements. You remember last week, we talked about the fact that that word elements is a reference to a portion or a piece. It is a part of something. And he says, you are holding on to a portion of something that is weak and beggarly. Now, we, I spent the entire sermon last week on this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, proving it to you tonight. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon if you need to. But we learned that what he's referring to is the Old Testament law. The old covenant. And he's saying, look, the old covenant was weak and was a weak and beggarly element. He says the old covenant was simply a portion or a piece or a part of a bigger thing. He said the old covenant was never meant to be the full thing or the full picture. He said it was a shadow or a figure of better things to come. Now, what's interesting, and I, again, we preached on that last week, but what's interesting, and I pointed this out last week as well, is that he is equating they, the fact that before they were saved, they were worshiping idols, to now that they're saved, going back to the Old Testament uh, mosaic laws. He's equating those as almost the same thing. He says, look, how be it then when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. He says, but now after that ye have known God or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. And of course the bondage there is talking about being brought under the bondage of the law. So it's interesting to me that he brings up uh, them going back to the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and he's equating it to how before they were saved when they were worshiping idols. And again, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I'll just bring it up to answer the question because I think it's something that if you think about it, you might be confused by it. But the reason that he brings that up is this, because the Mosaic Law, like we've already said, like I preached about last week, the Old Testament Law 
was a component. It was a part of something much bigger. It was not meant to be the thing. It was not ever meant to be the thing that would bring us salvation. It was only something that would prepare us. It was our schoolmaster, if you will, to bring us to Christ. And what, the reason he compares that to them which by nature are no gods is because for the Gentiles in the same way, God revealed himself through creation. God revealed himself through conscience. God revealed himself through nature. And that is why every single uh, society and every single group of people that has ever existed on this earth have always believed in some sort of a deity or some sort of a God. They, by nature, human beings are not atheists. They only become atheists when they go to some sort of higher education and get brainwashed to believe that garbage. By nature, God put it in us that there is something bigger and better and greater and something that created all of us. But that conscience and that creation being uh, the thing that puts in us, by nature, we know that there is a God. That's only a part. That's only an element. That won't get you the whole way. That might get you to believe in, in, in a God or in lowercase g gods, but you not only need the revelation of God through creation, you also need the revelation of God through the Word of God because it is the Word of God that brings faith. By, uh, the Bible says that uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the word of God that reveals the name which is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's comparing those for a reason because he says you were holding on to something that was only partial. Creation taught you that there was a God, but you needed the other part. You needed the rest of the story. And he says in the same way now, you're going back to the Mosaic Law, which has only given you a figure or a shadow of the greater thing, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And again, it's just, and I only bring that up or make a big deal about it because I want you to understand why it is that he's making those equations. Why he's saying that the weak and beggarly elements are being of that which is bondage, which is the Old Testament law, and comparing it to uh, that which by nature are no God. So that's the, the, the theological reason why he brings it up. Let me give you just real quickly kind of an application there. In verse 9, he says this, but now, because remember, in verse 8, he talked about back when you were not saved. But in verse 9, he says, after you got saved, he says, but now. And I love how the Apostle Paul words this. And it's interesting to me because the way he words it kind of causes you to pause and to take a look at it. He says, but now, after that ye have known God. He says, but now, after that ye have known God. And then it's like the Apostle Paul stops and kind of thinks about what he just said, and he kind of corrects himself. He says, but now, after that ye have known God. And then he pauses and says, or, let me say it this way, rather are known of God. And you say, why is it that Paul stops himself when he says, but now that ye are known of God, and then he kind of pauses and makes a correction, he says, or rather are known of God. You say, why does he do that? Well, he does that because of the fact that salvation is not us knowing God, but salvation is us being known of God. It's us being known by God. Keep your place there in Galatians 4. Go to Matthew chapter 7 just real quickly. First book in the New Testament should be fairly easy to find Matthew chapter 7. Now, let me answer this as well, because we obviously are King James only around here. We believe the King James Bible is God's inspired, preserved, inerrant word of God. And someone might look at this and say, well, it looks like the Apostle Paul kind of made a mistake here. He started to say one thing, and he meant to say another thing. Why didn't he just cross this out? Why is it still there? Why? 
why is, is this sort of like he makes a statement and then he kind of corrects the statement. He says, but now after that you have known God or rather are known of God. And let me just say this. It's not, it's not like it's a, a, a huge mistake, obviously, even if you want to, uh, I don't know that we should even call it a mistake. But the, the reason that I believe that the, the Holy Spirit allowed Paul and I would say even directed Paul to say the words after that you have known God comma, or rather are known of God, is for the same reason we're talking about it right now, is to highlight something for us. Is it necessarily wrong to say are known uh, after that you have known God? Well, here's the thing. To be known of God, you kind of have to know who God is, right? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's not necessarily wrong to say that ye have been known of God, but Paul wants to put the emphasis in the right place, and he kind of pauses and stops and corrects himself so that we, the reader, would stop and think, why did he just say that? Why did he just make that point? Why did he take the time to say, but now, after that, ye have known of God? No, let me say it this way, or rather are known of God. Why would he do that? I believe he did that to highlight it so that 2,000 years later, on a Wednesday night, I would pick it out and bring it up to you. To show us that he's saying, look, I want to clarify, I want to be clear. Salvation is being known of God. You have known God. But he said, really, it's that you are known of God. You say, I think you're making a big deal about this. Well, go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 22. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. In Matthew 7, 22, we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. The words are in red, of course. It's the, mouth, the words coming out of the mouth of the Lord. And here's what he said about the day of judgment. Matthew 7, 22, he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful, notice this word, works. Jesus prophesied that on the day of judgment, there will be many people who will stand in front of him and they will begin to list off all their good works. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, these are the reasons they're saying why they should be allowed to go to heaven and why they should not be sent to hell. Why should you not be sent to hell? According to these people, their answer is because we have we not prophesied in thy name and thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now, it sounds like these sound like good people, religious people. I mean, obviously, they're, they're, they're not saved. We know that. But it's, they're not like axe murderers. I mean, they, they, they're saying, look, we spent our life prophesying in thy name, casting out devils, and, and, and doing many wonderful works. But notice the answer, verse 23. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. See, the truth is this. Salvation is not necessarily, do you know God? Salvation is being known by God. The question is not, do you know God? The question is, does God know you? Because you can say, well, I pro- I'm religious. I go to church. I, I, I engage in religious activity. But if he says, I never knew you. Sorry, I don't know you. I know you, but, but I don't know you. And this is why Paul says, but now, after they have known God, or rather are known of God. This is why I always make the joke, and, and it's not a big deal, and it's a little bit of just semantics, but I think it's, it's interesting because we as human beings always want to turn things around and make things uh, the wrong way. We like to say, religious people like to say, oh, everything changed when I found Jesus. And whenever people say that to me, I always chuckle in my mind and think to myself, I didn't know Jesus was lost. 
Because the truth is, and isn't it funny that what the Bible teaches is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost? It's funny how we always like to turn things around. I found Jesus as if he was lost. Actually, no, he found me. It doesn't matter if you know God. Does God know you? Because what we need to understand is this, and we'll get to it later in our text. In fact, you can go back to Galatians chapter 4 if you would. But here's what we need to understand. Salvation is being known by God. Discipleship is knowing God. And evangelism is making God known. The reason that Paul makes this big deal about it is because today people want to teach that if you want to go to heaven, you better know God. You better get close to God. You better understand God. You better read the Bible. And you better get do the things that God wants you to do. And look, God wants you to get to know Him after salvation. But before salvation, it does not matter how religious you are. It does not matter how many church services you go to. It doesn't matter how many times you get baptized or how many times you read the Bible. It does not matter how religious you are. Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have many wonderful works? And it does not matter if he never knew you. So today people want to emphasize, well, we need to get to know God, and that's salvation. And look, I'm all about getting to know God. But before you get to know God, how about being known by God, known of God? Let's make sure that he doesn't say, I never knew you. But that he says, you're one of mine. So Paul kind of makes this little play on words here just to bring our attention. He says, but now after that ye have known God, or rather, let me correct it, let me clarify it, are known of God. He says, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. I want you to notice that uh, Paul is, is, is referring here to the fact that he thought that they were saved. He makes comments regarding what he thought before they were saved, how they were worshiping that which by nature are no gods. And now after salvation, he says, but now I believe that ye are known of God or rather are known of God. But then I want you to notice that Paul also now doubts their salvation. Notice verse 10. Well, actually, look at verse 9 just, just to get the context. But now, after that, ye have known God, or rather known of God. He said, How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? You say, well, how do you know that's referring to the Old Testament Mosaic law? Well, here's how we know. Because in verse 10, he says, He just got done saying, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? And then in verse 10, which is in the context, he says, here's how you're getting yourself back into bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. What is that a reference to? That is a reference to the Old Testament ordinances of the Mosaic Law. And look, we as New Testament Christians no longer keep the Old Testament ordinances should not keep the Old Testament ordinances of the Mosaic Law. Let's run some verses just to look at this. Go to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter 2. You're there in Galatians. You'll go past Ephesians, Philippians, into the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Colossians 2, 14. Notice the Bible says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. It's interesting and it's important for you to note that it says ordinances here because today there are those who teach that when Jesus came, he got rid of the entire law, all the law. And that statement is not necessarily wrong 
it depends what you mean by the law. Because what Jesus got rid of was the Mosaic law referring to the Old Testament covenant that God made with the children of Israel. But the laws that were just like the criminal moral laws, he didn't really change his mind on that. He didn't, he didn't repeal, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are still in act, in play. You say, well, what did, what did he remove? He removed the Old Testament religious ceremonial ordinances, the context of a temple and a priesthood and the things that go along with that. That is what the word ordinance is. An ordinance is something that is done religiously, ritually, symbolically. Notice Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now people say, well, well why, did, why were the ordinances against us? Because remember, we talked about it last week. The New Testament is a more intimate covenant. In the Old Testament, God was the father of a nation. In the New Testament, God is my personal father. I can go to God through prayer and say, our father. We can say, our father, which art in heaven. In the Old Testament, they had a temple. In the New Testament, I am a temple. In the Old Testament, they had a priesthood. In the New Testament, I am a priest. So the ordinances were against us, keeping us at a distance from God. And the Bible says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's why I always think it's interesting. People say, you know, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And people like to just make up stuff, you know, what was finished. And they just make up all sorts of things, what, what was finished. And, and the most, I would say maybe the most famous thing people like to say that Jesus said regarding it is finished is the, the fact that they'll say, well, the work that needs to be done for salvation, it was finished. The problem with that is that salvation is believing on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And at the cross, when he said, it is finished, he still had not been buried, and he definitely had not yet resurrected. And the Bible says that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead. So it is finished cannot be referring to the work needed for salvation because it was certainly not finished if that's what you're referring to. The thing is, you don't have any context to say what he was talking about because he simply said, it is finished. But when you look at the Bible and you study what the Bible tells us about what was actually finished on the cross, here is something that you could probably actually look at and say, this might have been what Jesus was talking about. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would say right before he died, it is finished. You say, what finished? The Old Testament. The old covenant. You say, I don't know. I think you're kind of, you're kind of, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, stretching that a little bit. Okay. How about this? He said it is finished. He gave up the ghost, and then the uh, the 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 separation between the holy of holies and the holy uh, rent the curtain that separated man, the priest, from being able to access the holy of holies in the temple. Rent. It was divine vandalism. So I don't know. I just think that when he said it is finished, he was just talking about the Mosaic law. It's done. It is finished. The blotting out of the hand 
writing of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now, if you don't like my interpretation, that's fine. You don't have to argue. We don't have to argue about it, but let me just say this. I got a verse to you. Verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. Now, that is the context. That had nothing to do with the sermon that was all for free. I just brought all that up to give you the context because that is the context of verse 16. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meats. The word meats referring to food. The biblical word meat means food. We usually think of meat as flesh, but the Bible uses the word flesh for that. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drinks or in respect of an holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days. What is this referring to? It is the ordinances that were being kept as part of the Old Testament covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with the children of Israel. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. You're there in Colossians. If you just flip over past 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, then you have Philemon, and then you have the book of Hebrews. So skip the T books, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and then you'll have the book of Philemon, which is a small book, and then the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 10. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10. Notice what the Bible says, which stood only in meats and drinks, and diverse washings, notice it, and carnal ordinances. Colossians 2.14 said, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. Here, which only, which stood only, referring to the old covenant, in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them, notice, until the time of reformation. So we see that we are not to keep those old Testament ordinances. Now, what there are certain things that have been repealed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and all of them have to do with the priesthood. The temple, the priest, and all the things associated, all the rituals, the meat, the drinks, the divers washing, the cardinal ordinances, all of that has been done away. So let me just give you some applications. We do not, as New Testament believers, uh, we're not supposed to keep the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. You can eat pork. You can eat shellfish. You can eat, I don't know, a rabbit. I don't know. Whatever you want, you can eat it. But here's what's interesting is that people today still, there are groups of people that still follow the dietary restrictions. Obviously, the Judaizers, Judaism, the Jews, but it's not just the Jews. So-called, and I use the the term so-called purposefully, so-called Christians also keep the dietary restrictions, like the the, the Seventh-day Adventists. They keep the dietary restrictions. Obviously, the Hebrew Roots Movement keeps the dietary restrictions. Mormons, now they don't keep the Old Testament dietary restrictions. They just came up with their own weird restrictions. But, you know, the Mormons don't drink coffee or whatever, don't drink Coca-Cola, which I think is a sin. Don't, you know, they, 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 they have these dietary restrictions that they keep and impose. How about this, the Catholics? I mean, the Catholics have a 40-day period called Lent, where they don't eat certain things or whatever. I thought Lent was something you pull out of your belly button, but I don't know. <laughs> they, they, but they have these restrictions. And you know, the Bible says be careful about, the Bible calls anyone that tries to restrict what you eat as, um, as doctrines of devils. And of course, we're talking about religiously here, okay? Not, not like a diet, okay? Some of you are like, praise the Lord. <laughs> we're not supposed to keep Old Testament holidays, We're not supposed to keep the Sabbath day. Again, Judaism, Seventh-day Adventists, 
Hebrew roots of them. There's Baptists that, that, that keep the Sabbath day as the holy day. And look, these are things that we are not supposed to observe. You observe days and months and times and years. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drinks or in respect of an holy day or of a new moon or of the Sabbath days. He says, these are things that were done until the time of Reformation. So they were keeping those Old Testament ordinances. Obviously, they're being influenced by the Judaizers. And then I want you to notice, go back to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 11. As a result of that, he says, I am afraid of you. I am afraid of you. And of course, the Apostle Paul is using that term a little differently than the way we would use it today. Today, what we would probably say is, I am afraid for you. Or, or I'm a, uh, you're making me afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to you. He says, I am afraid of you. He says, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. What is it that the Apostle Paul is afraid of? He is afraid that they're not actually saved. He's doubting their salvation. Look at, look, skip down just real quickly to verse 20, just to show you uh, the same thing in a, in a different verse. Galatians 4.20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. Notice what he says. He says, for I stand in doubt of you. He said, I am afraid of you in verse 11. He said, I stand in doubt of you in verse 20. Now, here's what's interesting to me, is that here we have the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived under the Lord Jesus Christ, definitely the greatest evangelist, preacher, pastor, whatever, you know, church planner, wrote most of the New Testament or major part of the New Testament. I mean, one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived, and we see him doubting somebody's salvation. But notice... That when he doubts their salvation, it's different than when most people today doubt somebody's salvation. Because I want you to notice that Paul doubted their salvation because of what they were believing or what they were now believing. Today, most people doubt people's salvation because of their lifestyle. And I want you to notice that th those, those are not, that is, a, that is an incorrect way of understanding salvation. If somebody has a clear testimony of salvation and they leave our church, and let's say they leave, they start committing, they start living a really wicked lifestyle. They, they start, um, you know, drinking and smoking and doing drugs and, and fornicating or whatever. They're just li living a really bad lifestyle. You know, my mind's never going to say like, oh man, I'm not even sure if they're saved. And that's what most people think. But that's wrong, and, and, if, and if that's what you think, you know, you got to ask yourself, why do you think that? Because that might reveal something about what you think about salvation. Right. And you can say, like, well, I just don't think that anybody uh, could be saved and live such a bad lifestyle. Okay, how about Lot in the Bible, who's literally was probably one of the worst characters in the entire Bible, and if you and I read the story of Lot in the book, uh, in the, in the, in the book of Genesis, and that's all we had we would all think that law was a reprobate. That's what we would think. Right. So well, why don't we think that? Because the New Testament tells us that he had a righteous soul. <laughs> that he vexed his righteous soul. So obviously, look, saved people, if they do wrong, God, they have, if, they're, if they're actually saved, they have a heavenly father that's going to chastise them, that's going to punish them. We understand all that. But look, you, we should not look at people's lifestyles and then say, well, I think they are saved or they're not saved. Obviously, unless they're doing something that actually is reprobate, 
like an unnatural sin, that should not be, you, you say, you, then when, when would you doubt somebody? You know, here's the point. If somebody leaves his church and lives a wicked lifestyle, I'm not going to necessarily doubt their salvation, but if somebody leaves his church and becomes a Mormon, you see what I'm saying? You're like, but, but they're living a great life. I mean, they're not doing anything, but they're not even drinking Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, but I would doubt their salvation because they've changed what they believe. Do you understand the difference? And that's what Paul, Paul's saying, like, hey, you guys are changing what you believe. He said, I'm afraid of you. He said, I send in doubt of you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Galatians is a very negative book. Paul had a positive book called Philippians. Remember that one? Amen. Philippians, he's just like, rejoice in the Lord. He's like, you guys are great. You guys are awesome. Galatians is a negative book. Here's another negative book. First and second Corinthians. Very negative books. But they're negative for two different reasons. Galatians is negative because he's correcting theological, doctrinal beliefs that they're, that they're wrong on. Corinthians is negative because they're living bad lifestyles. They're allowing fornication and sin in the church. They're just not very good Christians. Here's what's interesting. Never in 1st and 2nd Corinthians does he say, I don't even know if you guys are saved. I mean, they got fornication and drunkenness and all sorts of sin being allowed in the church. Never says that. Galatians, they've got bad Judaism doctrine. He's like, I'm starting to wonder if you're even saved. So that should teach us something about doubting somebody's salvation. Look, if somebody leaves this church and, and becomes a Hindu or a Catholic, yeah, I'm going to wonder, like, were they even saved? But if somebody leaves and they're just in drunkenness or whatever, yeah, you know, maybe they were saved, maybe they weren't saved, but that should not really cause us to doubt somebody's salvation because the truth is that Christians can get backslidden and they can live in sin. But here Paul is saying, I'm doubting your salvation based off what you believe. And since salvation is what you believe, that makes perfect sense. So we have Paul's doubts for the Galatians. And then in verses 12 through 20, we have Paul's hope for the Galatians. Why don't you notice, first of all, Paul's strong leadership. Verse 12, brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. He says, be as I am, for I am as ye are, ye have not injured me at all. Now the reason that he says ye have not injured me at all is because Paul is defending the fact, he's trying to explain to them, I'm not rebuking you because I'm offended. He said, you didn't offend me. Because oftentimes when, when Paul is writing a letter that's, that's very harsh or hostile or rebuking, or when a pastor preaches maybe something that rubs you the wrong way or you don't like, people sometimes they like to just kind of like think, oh, well, he must just be mad at me. And Paul's saying, like, I'm not mad at you. He said, you have not injured me at all. He said, I actually care about you. And what we see here is a strong leadership. He says, I beseech you. He says, be as I am. Be as I am. That's Paul's strong leadership. And this is something that's common in the epistles of Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you go backwards, you have Galatians, then 2 Corinthians, then 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And look, for, any, for all of us who are in any sort of leadership position, this should be humbling for us. Think about yourself as a leader. And I don't care what leadership position you are. If it's a husband with a wife, or a wife with children, or at work, or as a pastor, can you as a leader say this to your followers, be as I am? Be as I am. Because you know, a lot of leaders, what they like to say is, do what I say, but not what I do. But Paul didn't say, do what I said, and not what I do. 
He said, do what I said and do what I do. He said, be as I am. That's strong leadership. 1 Corinthians 4.16, wherefore, notice what he says to the Corinthians, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Notice 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And look, there is a place for human leadership. Obviously, we should all be following Christ. But it's okay, like Paul says, to follow a human leader, be followers as me, even as I, am, uh, as I also am of Christ. In Philippians 3.17, you can go there if you like, you're there in 1 Corinthians, or if you got your place in Galatians, after Galatians you have Ephesians and Philippians. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. It's a powerful statement for a leader to say, be as I am. And look, this should be our goal in life. Our goal as leaders, our goal, it's always interesting to me that people who are weak leaders or are, are novice to leadership, they always want to put a bunch of burdens on their followers and they want to put burdens on their followers that they themselves have not done or have not met. And look, this is not right. We as leaders should always be able to say, be as I am. Do what I'm doing. I lead by example. Be as I am. It reminds me of Gideon. You don't have to turn there. But in Gideon, in Judges chapter 7, in the life of Gideon, the Bible says this, and I just love it regarding leadership. Judges 7, 16, he says this, and he divided 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand uh, with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers, and he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. And that's good leadership. When a father can say to his sons, as I do, so shall ye do. Look on me and do likewise. When a pastor can say to his people, be as I am. When a mother can say to her children, do what I'm doing. But would we have the guts to say that to our followers or would we be embarrassed? And say, don't, don't do what I do. See, when you tell your kids, be as I am, mom. When you tell your kids, be as I am, dad. Then you, you better be a good example. And we see Paul's strong leadership here. That he's, he cares for these people. He just got done saying, like, I'm not even sure if you're saved based off the things you're saying to me. But he says, you know what? I beseech you, be as I am. For I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. Then he says in verse 13, he begins to remind them of their prior love for him. See, the Galatian churches really loved Paul. He went there and got them saved. He discipled them. Notice what he says. He says, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. He says, You know that when I came and preached the gospel to you, he said, I was very sick. Through infirmity of the flesh, he said, I was sick physically, but I came and I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. He said, even though I showed up and I wasn't the best and I wasn't feeling the greatest and I had this infirmity of the flesh, he said, you didn't despise me. You didn't reject me. He said, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. You received me as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they're rejecting Paul and they've turned against him because the Judaizers have turned them against Paul. But Paul's reminding them, hey, you used to love me. Notice verse 15. Where is then the blessedness you speak of? 
For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Now, let me just quickly kind of go, go off on a little bit of a rabbit road just for a second. But uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and let, let me say this, that the, the Apostle Paul in his writings wrote about this infirmity in the flesh that he had. In 2 Corinthians, it's called his thorn in the flesh. And Galatians seems to indicate, because uh, 2 Corinthians doesn't really tell us what his thorn in the flesh was. But Galatians seems to indicate that his thorn in the flesh was something to do with his eyes. 2 Corinthians 12, 5 says this. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would uh, desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think me above that which uh, he seemeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Notice verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. That's the infirmity he mentioned in verse 5. He says, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He says, I, was, I had this thorn in the flesh. And then in Galatians chapter 4, go, go back to Galatians chapter 4. In verse 13, he says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh. And, and again, we don't, we're not told what it was, but it, it seems to indicate that it had something to do with his eyes. Because in verse 15, he says, wherein then... The blessedness you speak of, for I bear you record that if it, if I if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. So he's saying, what he's saying is, you loved me so much that if it was possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Why would he say that? Obviously, there must have been something wrong with his eyes. And they loved him so much that he said there was a time in our life and in, in my ministry where you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. But now your heart is far from me, Paul is saying. And he's, he's, he's bringing up the fact that they used to love him. Let me give you one other reference regarding his eyes. Go to Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11, he says, You see how large a letter, you see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. And here Paul is saying, again, bringing up, I, I believe, his eyes. He says, you've seen how large a letter, and I don't know that this could be really, regard. he's not referencing the size of the book, because the book of Galatians is only six chapters. There's other books he wrote that were longer and larger than that. So it's not a reference to the, the length of the book. You say, well, what, when he says, you see how large a letter, well, it's either a reference to the physical, how large the letters physically are, because he's writing this. We've seen in other epistles that he dictated, but he said, I've written unto you with my own hand. So he's either saying, look, I wrote this with my own hand. That's why you're getting so big, because he had bad eyesight. Or maybe he's just referring to the fact that he doesn't normally write even six chapters worth of something with his own hand because of his eyesight. But both are a, a reference to his eyesight. So we see that his thorn in the flesh might have been something with his eyes. But again, the point that is being brought up is that they used to love him. In fact, they loved him so much that if they had been possible, he says there in Galatians 4, go, go back to Galatians chapter 4 if you would. If it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. That's their prior love. But now look at their current contempt. Verse 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And you know, it's sad, but oftentimes when you tell people the truth, it makes them become your enemy. 
Proverbs 25, 27 to 6, you have to turn there, it says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And you know, when somebody is telling you something that is truthful and maybe it hurts you, you might want to, instead of thinking, well, they, they, must, they must hate me or they must be offended at me. He says, you have not injured me, Paul says. It might just be that they love you enough to tell you the truth. Pay for the wounds of a friend. But I can understand Paul's heart here. And I, and I, I can understand because he's, he's saying, you used to love me. He said, I got you saved. He said, I got you baptized. He said, I discipled you. He said, if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. But he said, now things have changed. He says, am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. And I, and I will tell you this, in ministry, over the last 12 years in ministry, my wife have learned this lesson, unfortunately, more times than we'd like to admit. The fact that you can just tell when people, their hearts get hard, when they get backslidden, when they hear gossip maybe, or they believe something that's not true. And you can, and you can tell when they kind of turn from you they start loving money they start loving the world they love start loving sin and the flesh they 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 stop loving god and you can just tell and sometimes you you want to look at somebody and say man there was a time when you you would have done anything for this church but am i therefore become your enemy because i tell you the truth and you know you should guard from that you should guard never be one of these people that that gets you know the bible says Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Amen. We should love the truth. You say, what, what if the truth hurts? You should love the truth. Hey, don't lie to yourself. Don't allow yourself to be lied to, even if the truth makes you feel bad about yourself. Always embrace the truth. And when somebody is standing up and telling you the truth, you ought to say, that person loves me. I don't like it, but that person loves me. This is what our uh, uh, brother Oliver, our deacon, was preaching about on, on Sunday night. But never be the person who can't take correction. I mean, I know a little bit about this because I've corrected a lot of people in my life. It's literally in my job description. And I've had a lot of experience where I've brought a lot of people into my office. I brought man after man. I'm talking about over the last 12 years, man after man after man into my office. And I'm usually extremely kind and extremely respectful. And usually when I have to correct somebody, I'm, I'm like, hey, brother, I love you. I'm not against you. But this is something I got to talk to you about. And X, Y, and Z. And there have been men who, you can, nobody likes it, but there have been men who you can tell. They're just like, oh, man, pastor, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize I did it. And, 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 they, and then there's other men. And just like, and I think to myself, wow, you're weak because that's weak, not being able to receive correction. And then I think to myself, you're not going to last you very long because if you're not strong enough, if you're not secure enough, if you're not mature enough to receive correction, you will not last very long in an independent, fundamental Baptist King James preaching the word of God church. Paul looks at these people, he said, there was a time when you would have plucked out your own eyes and you had given to me, them to me, but now you have turned on me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We see his strong leadership, and then real quickly as we finish up, we'll see their weak leadership. Notice verse 17. Paul's talking to the Galatians. He says, they, who's the they? The Judaizers. He says, they zealously affect you, but not well. He says, they zealously affect you. 
He says, look, I'm telling you to be like me. I'm telling you, you used to love me. You were right with God and you were right with me. And, and he said, we need to get back there. But he's telling them, you are weak. You are a weak leader. Why? Because they have allowed someone to influence them who's not good for them. I want every teenager to listen to me very carefully. He's saying, you are weak. You are weak. Look, please, I'm not trying to offend you kids, you young people. I mean, honestly, everyone needs to listen to me. But some of you, I've already lost you, so it's whatever. But you young people, please listen to me. You are mentally weak when you allow those to influence you, and it's not good for you. They sell, look at verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. He says they're influencing you. They're affecting you. In fact, they're very zealous in their effect to you, but it's not well. He said it's not good. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. Do you see that? You young people, listen to me. When there's a relationship and a friendship where one person just constantly influencing you to do, they're, they're, they got a lot of influence on you. They've got a lot of, uh, of, of, of influence in your life, but not well. They zealously affect you, but not well. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yay, they would exclude you that you might affect them. You can't get them to do right. You try to get them to do right, and they're like, no, no, we don't want that. Do you understand what I just said? Bad influences in a church like this. Young people who are saying, hey, watch this movie. I'm hiding it from my parents. Hey, watch this. Listen to this music. I'm hiding it from my parents. Hey, I'm, I'm drinking this. I shouldn't be drinking or smoking this. I shouldn't be smoking. They're influencing you, and you just allow it into your heart. You're weak. And then you try to influence them. Hey, how about we don't talk about that? How about, well, let's go soul winning. You're like, I don't want that. You say, what do you do with that? Look, I, I wish some of you young people would just grow a backbone and have some respect for yourself. Amen. And just tell them, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not your caddy. I'm not your butler. I'm not just going to let you just run the show here. You're, you're not going to influence me to do that which is wrong. They zealously affect you, but not well. Notice verse 18. They were not only weak because they allowed someone to influence them who was not good for them, but they were also weak because they could only do right when a strong leader was present. Look at verse 18. But it is good to be zealously affected. He says, look, there's nothing wrong with letting people influence you. Nothing wrong with that at all. It is good to be zealously affected. Always in a good thing. Don't allow people to influence you who make you worse. Don't allow people who, to influence you who, 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 who are influencing you in that which is not well. Make sure they influence you in a good thing. Notice, look at it. Young people, look at it. Last part of verse 18. And not only when I'm present with you. He said, look, you're only strong when I'm around, Paul says. And if you're only strong when the pastor's around, when the pastor's wife's around, when the staff's around, when mom's around or dad's around, if you're only strong when somebody else is strong uh, around you, then you're not strong, you're weak. If you can only do right when someone who's strong in leadership is around, that's what he's saying. They zealously affect you, but not well. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, but not only when I am present with you, Paul says. He says, why don't you do right even when I'm not around? Why don't you develop enough strength and character in your life to say, no, I'm not going to let you affect me. No, I, no, you're a loser. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to hear that. Keep that to yourself. 
They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that they might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, but not only when I am present with you. Let's finish this up. He says there in verse 19, My little children, whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Here we find the goal of the Christian life. What is the goal of the Christian life? Look at it, last verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again. He says, look, I, I'm starting to doubt your salvation, but I, I thought I got you saved. He said, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again. He says, until Christ be formed in you. You say, what is the goal of the Christian life? It is that Christ be formed in you. For whom he did foreknow, Romans 8, 29, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is the purpose of the Christian life after salvation? Well, salvation is this, that we are known of God. But then discipleship is that we would know God. Why? That we might have Christ be formed in us. We are trying to be formed to the image of Christ, conformed to the image of his son. And then Paul says there in verse 20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm rebuking you and I'm correcting you, but it's not because I want to. It's because I have to. It's because I need to. He said, I would like to change my voice. He said, I, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to write you a letter like I wrote the Philippians about how great they're doing. But he said, I stand in doubt of you. He says, look, our goal is to know God, to be known of God for salvation, to know God for sanctification, and then to make God known for soul winning, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That you say, until when? How long are we going to do this? Until Christ be formed in you. Every day, every day, trying to be more like Christ, more like Christ. Until when? Until Christ be formed in you. That is the purpose of the Christian life. Let's bow our heads and I will pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word and thank you for this passage of scripture. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to know that salvation is being known of God. That he would know us, that he would never say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. Sanctification is to know God. God is the goal, to know him, to walk with him that I may know him in the power of the resurrection. And then, Lord, I pray you'd help us to realize that our goal is to make God known. Help us to make this, these themes in our lives. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song.